welcome to the 99 Topics for the CCFP Exam podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brady Bouchard. This is part two of our diabetes talk. Have a look earlier on the podcast for the awesome and epic part one. Dr. Brady Bouchard, how you doing? Not too bad and yourself. Not too bad. Not too bad. Rocking. Rocking as uh rocking as usual and stuff. So super. How's the weather? How's the weather in Northern Saskatchewan? <laughs> it never changes. It's friggin' cold. It's friggin' you know what you pre- now that's what you call an adverb. Friggin' cold. Friggin' cold, yeah. <laughs> Not just cold, friggin' cold. cold. Exactly. <laughs> I- <laughs> That is that is awesome and stuff. So we're gonna rock some diabetes today. Heck yeah, halfway through. Part two. Yeah. Di- diabetes is not so. It's you have to do it in two parts. We couldn't do it justice. Exactly. Dr. It's such a we huge topic. Do it justice. I know, I know. And you gotta break out your little trick. I want to hear your little trick for 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 starting people on insulin. You know what I mean and stuff. The dead simple way for for residency, anyways. Um, there you go. Exactly. And I, I actually looked it up when I was, you know, researching this topic a little bit. But it's actually yeah. like almost a standard, like foolproof way to do it. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And it's it's kind of one of these it's kind of one of these things because it likes to come up on exams and stuff. Write me an insulin prescription. Right? Exactly. Like, or write the prescription for this person starting their insulin. Yeah. And you know, everybody forgets, you know, that they need pens and that they need lancets and test strips and all that wonderful stuff. You know? Exactly. Oh yeah, and that's a good point too. I didn't even put that in my in my little uh, go to algorithm here, but well, it's not even an algorithm. It's just steps for it. But anyways, starting insulin for dummies. Perfect. So let's hear starting insulin for Sunny. So diabetes part two, because the only thing better than one part of diabetes is a second part of diabetes. So we can do it to justice. This is an important condition. Um, um, it affects a lot of patients. So I'm glad we're giving it the attention that it deserves, Dr. Bouchard. Absolutely. So step there one, you. stop oral antihypoglycemics, except metformin. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. Except metformin. I love that you put that as a caveat. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, you may get slightly bit better con- better control if you keep the metformin on board. So, but stop the other stuff, right? Well, and as you mentioned, there's still that mortality uh, benefit exactly. with metformin, even with exactly. That That's the probably one of the few drugs that we actually have um, a, um, a little squeegee bit of mortality data from, right? And 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 remember, one of the two reasons people come to see a doctor, you're going to live longer and feel better. That metformin may help you live longer. Does that make sense? And that's probably the only one that we even have a little bit of evidence for. Perfect. So we're going to just leave the metformin on. Step two. Step two. Start. start a long-acting insulin. So if you're choosing insulins, you want to choose Perfect. the long-acting one to start off with. So there's actually a paper from 2007 that I read. Um, there's a bunch of different ways to choose. So you can either do weight-based dosing, but honestly, like the dead simple way is pick a long-acting insulin. So either Glargine or Detamir. Um, 10, yeah. mi- 10 minutes at night. Or 10 units exactly. a night. 10, units. 10 minutes at night, right? <laughs> 10 at night. Dr. Exactly. It's, Dr. The, it's the end of the week. It's the end of the week. Give it a week. I want to give that patient 16 minutes of just total insulin. Period, <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah. There you go. Very, very good. So 10 units at night. You yeah. know, sometimes they'll say 0.1 units per kilogram. But exactly. yeah, 10 is a good place to start for most adults and stuff, right? So perfect. Absolutely. Love it. So make sure. And you know what, folks? This applies to when you're putting people on insulin in hospital. Make sure you have them on a long-acting insulin with your correctional scale. You should not be using short-acting insulin in hospital with no long-acting insulin on board. That's a big no 
that can cause um, uh, um, that that worsens control. And we know that if your glucose is high in hospital, your glucose is too low in hospital, you get worse outcomes in hospital, right? So excellent advice by the sexiest ever, Dr. Bouchard. <laughs> That's a brilliant point, Mike, actually, because all too often you'll see, I mean, the standard is the sliding scale insulin in hospital and the nurses have the sheets all ready to go and you exactly. check off whatever insulin you want, but sliding scale insulin is not long acting insulin. They exactly. Sh- so if you're going to exactly. start sliding scale, if they're known diabetic or you discover it in hospital, start the long acting first, and then you can initiate sliding scale on top of that. Because what will happen is the nurses probably just never give the short acting. Exactly. The long acting. Or, yeah, exactly. or they give less of a dose of it. Exactly. Exactly. And that's perfect. So that's, that's very, very perfect. So make sure in hospital or if you're writing your patient um, 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 on insulin, make sure they get a long acting insulin. Perfect. What's next on the, on what, what's next is the good Dr. Bouchard recommend. Exactly. Number three. So once you start in the insulin, what are you aiming for? What's your target? So start giving it at night, give the QHS dose, because although um, especially uh, Lantus has branded themselves as a 24 hour, completely smooth curve. It will peak at some point and, you know, give or take 12 hours later because it's a 24 hour medication. So you're, you're dosing at night and then, uh, you're getting them to check sugars in the morning. Perfect. Perfect. And and just in the morning to start, because again, with all the stuff, you're going to overwhelm the patient, right? So you're, you're negotiating with them. You're like, okay, it's time to start insulin. We're only going to do one injection a day and we're going to check your sugar once a day and we'll start with that and we'll see how you do. So, so morning sugars and your target is between four and seven, give or take. Excellent, excellent. So we're doing that. We're we're sliding. We we started some Detamir, um, um, or, or whatever type of long acting insulin you want to do. Okay, what's your, do you have a higher level? Let's say we're doing that. We're like, man, we are not winning. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, this is where I actually get the patients to do this right off the bat because they're going to be managing this down the road. Because you can you can still do close follow up and you can still change the insulin. But I tell them, you know, so you're aiming for that four to seven in the morning. You know how to read a glucometer. You can read yeah. a single digit number. Um, yeah. You're starting at ten units. Uh, twice a week or, you know, well, I usually do once a week, but this paper says yeah. twice a week. Once a week, if you're averaging higher than that, then increase yeah. it by two units. If you're averaging exactly. lower than that, decrease it by two units. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. And that's the kind of thing is that you, I have a theory that you can drive yourself completely insane by blood glucoses, right? Exactly. And by as well, yeah. my other thing you can drive yourself completely insane with is with INR. And probably the reason is, is that we, we like to adjust just based on a single value. Does that exactly. make sense? So, so, so what that approach allows you to do is that you're not just saying, oh, you're a little high that one time. You might be fine every other time. It may have been the cookie that you had before bedtime, right? Exactly. Um, 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 that one day, right? So you want to basically give yourself enough wiggle room so that you can do this yeah and that's a trend with a lot of our chronic disease stuff which i love it's the same thing with hypertension one measurement does not matter exactly exactly so again you want to give yourself a little bit of that wiggle room right yeah. you know oftentimes you know at the endocrinology offices and stuff you know they'll consider it if you're high on you know two or three consecutive occasions right then they'll consider adjusting it right but a single high they're not going to change around your whole regime just for that right and then as long as you're your A1C is not sky high, so you're you're initiating insulin with these patients just because it's creeping up a little bit. I mean, if they're doing this once a day, checking their sugar and once a day administration of of insulin, they probably won't need a short acting for months to years, if ever, if they get some weight loss in there, and Perfect. they can handle that way better. I mean, I I'd be able to handle one injection a day, one check of sugar a day, and you're not confusing yourself either because they're checking before meals, they're checking after meals, they're trying to go up, they're trying to go down, they're you know, that that's a bigger deal. And that's when you get the diabetic nurse educator in there too. Perfect. Perfect. I love it. I love it already. Give me more Dr. Bouchard. I want more. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I want, so, a little bit. I want a whole lot ex- of Brady Bouchard. I'm getting pure Dr. Bouchard's medulla oblongata.
So step three is you're titrating to that morning sugar. At some point, your, your patient's going to be where they need to be. So maybe they're at 10 units, maybe they're at 20 units, maybe they're at 30. But then they're going to be having morning sugars consistently four to seven. So the next step after that is you're checking your A1Cs. And so those are the kind of the longer term ones. So the three month check, because if they're at targets in the morning and their A1C is good, then the job's done. You're managing it appropriately. If you're getting morning sugars appropriately and your A1C after three months of getting this managed is still high, then that means you need to start checking sugars throughout the day. And obviously they're, they're peaking at other points of the day. So that's when you consider that postprandial um, glucose monitoring and you just check it to start off and then you start adding short acting insulin. I didn't want to get into this too much in the podcast or even in the study notes myself, because at least in my limited experience, if, if they're on a long acting insulin and understand how to use it and when to use it, and they're still on metformin, 99% of your patients are managed well, your type two diabetics are managed well this way. Yeah. Um, and, and I would want involvement of somebody else anyways, by that point And the, the nurse educator does a better way of explaining it, but that, that that's my four steps, the starting insulin for dummies. I love starting insulin for dummies. I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah. I like it a whole lot. I really that. I'm going to start doing that. Very, very cool. And that's a wonderful little approach for starting starting insulin with the effervescent as ever, Dr. Brady Bouchard. Now, Brady, now I, I remember, um, you know, a couple of the approaches that they that they have as well. If you let somebody, you know, bad control, you know, doesn't want to be on their medications, you're trying long acting, you're inserting in, um, 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 it's using the pre-mixed insulin. Does that make sense? So, yeah. you know, they have pre-mixed insulin, like 70-30, um, 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 which is NPH and R. They also have a... a, a the Nova Mix. Yeah, like yeah. the H and NPH, those types of uh, um, insulin as well. Yeah. Those have a 75-25 and stuff. Little approach that you can sometimes have. What you do is, sometimes what you would do is like, you'll have the patients, you're like, okay, they're not on any insulin. Um, um, I tried maybe some Lantus. They're not really in good control. They're all over the place. I may need to give them some pre-mixed insulin, right? And yep. we may need to we may need to deal about getting them some better control that way and stuff, right? So this little trick here, you take half their weight, so 0.5 units per kilogram, and you want to work out their total daily insulin dose, right? This just basically gives you a starting point, right? You can start working with numbers, right? Absolutely. So you work out, so, so let's say if I, I take the weight of the patient, uh, I'm taking 0.5 times that. So like, for example, if I have a um, 120 kilogram patient, I might say, okay, you know what, 120 kilograms, um, 0.5 is 60. So I'm, my total daily insulin to start is going to be 60 units. Does that make sense? Yeah, And then absolutely. what you do is you get two thirds at the morning and then two thirds in the evening with the evening meal, right? So right. you get 40 units in the morning and of, of the pre-mixed insulin, 30, 70 or 75, 25, and then 20 units at bedtime of 30. 70, 25, uh, I'm, I'm 75, 25 or so. So if you're going to be using to pre-mix insulin, that's an option as well too. Exactly. No, that's a good point. So I mean, I, yeah. either either you're on your, your long-acting insulin and you're adding in maybe one meal sugar, two meal sugar, three meal sugar, or after your yeah. long-acting insulin, if you're not getting good control and you want to try it a different way, um, that's totally legit. And actually some of our uh, endocrinologists I see doing that, switching from that once a day long-acting to that pre-mixed twice a day twice a day insulin so a different approach right and again yeah. it's you're basically you're balancing those two c's cost and compliance right like you know the more time you're getting insulin that's going to necessitate more glucose checks right so again you're going to have to gauge your compliance of your patient right exactly let's say you want to go intense let's say you're intense like you're like you have a person who's so motivated like i want to be i want to be on insulin intensely intensely there you go. Or I have somebody that I think might have type 1 diabetes or they have metab significant metabolic decompensation where maybe some of the PO medications might not necessarily work. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, 
Yeah. So oftentimes what you're using is you're using exactly as you said, your long acting insulin with um, an insulin correctional scale, right? So I'll just give you one little approach to kind of get yourself started. Of course, this is going to require monitoring. This is going to require education. You're going to want getting people carb counting so they can have their own insulin correctional scale with their own short, um, short acting insulin if necessary. So again, um, uh, um, um, you can estimate a patient based on half a unit per kilogram. So let's say again, we have our patient that's 120 kilograms. We're just using that so the numbers work out nice and neat. Um, uh, um, so point five units per kilogram, we're going to start off with a total daily insulin requirement of 60 units, right? Absolutely. What I can do is I can give 40% as a long-acting insulin, right? So I can give 40% of that as something like a glargine or a detamir, right? So um, so help me with my math here. You 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 have better math. What's 40% of 60, Dr. Bouchard? 24. I, there you go. So let's give this person 24 units of a long-acting insulin at bedtime, right? And the remaining insulin is going to be given as a short-acting with meals, and you can throw a sliding scale on top of that, right? So exactly. you're giving 40%, and then you're doing 20, 20, 20, right? Yep. So what's 20% of 60, uh, Dr. Bouchard, for my me and my math-impaired brain? Well, it's half of 40%. It's 12. There you go. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's 20 units at each. Yeah. You are a you are a hey wait 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 is your math correct here so what it's half so it's 24 it's 12 right yeah Brady? yeah there you go yeah. there you go excellent so we're getting 12 in the morning 12 at lunchtime 12 at uh at, uh, at dinner time and we can use a correctional scale on top of that we're using short acting insulin so exactly. that'd be an example of a more intensive regime right, right. you're definitely necessitating many many more glucose uh, uh uh checks and again this is where we say medicine is not only about content but it's also about context is your patient going to take your sugar more times you're giving insulin more glucose checks right yeah. more potential badness that can happen with hypoglycemia so you want to kind of gauge that with your patients as well and provide them with excellent supports your diabetes nurse educator yeah and generally less adherence too although i mean we're, we're talking it's, about the good patients that are willing to do that and then intense. like you mentioned before the other thing with the short acting insulin and you're getting more into type 1 diabetic territory too or exactly. you know motivated type 2 patients but uh two things in there a you get into the carb counting which we don't really need to get into here um, to adjust with meals, but uh, along with that is they can't be skipping meals or they need to be adjusting Perfect. insulin then. Exactly, exactly. So again, these are highly motivated patients or yeah. patients with type 1, you know what I mean? And highly, highly motivated, right? Yeah, and not only highly motivated, but good support system, right? So excellent yeah. involvement of the diabetes nurse educator because and they are going to be compliant, right? So again, it's not only about the content, right? It's also about that context. If you give that regime, that intense regime, you're going to get amazing good control, but it requires a hell of a lot more compliance. Does that make sense? A lot more checks, lots of about sticking yourself with a needle. Absolutely. Perfect. Ah, uh, what else along there? Oh, we're having so much fun. Oh, it's we're beautiful. We're having so much fun. Let's talk about acute. Let's talk about hyperglycemic emergencies, my friend. Oh my we goodness. Break in. I knew I knew you were all over that. Oh, I you know, it's our critical care. You know I love critical care. I know I you. love critical care as much as you love the integral. Like you are like <laughs> you love writing it. It looks so you know what I mean? Like there's a sexy math. You don't know me. <laughs> No, I, I left engineering for a reason to go to medicine for no more Listen, integrals. Listen, you're an engineer at heart, man. You're yeah, a, now true. you're a biologic engineer. Right? It's true. You know what I mean and stuff. Yep. There you go. You know what I mean? What's the diff? What's the related rates? What's the differential? You know what I mean and stuff. You're making cones, trying yep. to get cones and things. You know what I mean and stuff, and work out volumes of spheres. You know what I mean? <laughs> you're doing some serious mathematicking, my friend. Mathematicking. That's totally there. A word. You go. That's totally. So Speaking of mathematician, DKA, so um, um, diabetic ketoacidosis. So you have two ranges of your hyperglycemic emergencies. You have your classic sort of ketoacidosis, and you have something called HHS, hyperglycemic hyperosmolar state. Which one is worse? 
Dr. Bouchard, which one do you think is worse, my friend? Ooh, that's a good question. I think they're both Ooh. quite bad. They're both pretty they're bad. They're both quite bad. They both can be quite bad. Guess one has the highest mortality? HHS. Worse. Worse. Because guess what? Your cerebral, um, osmo, um, serum osmolality can predict mortality. So if you're, and oftentimes the, the, the people with HHS, their glucose is ridiculously high. Their serum osmolality can be high. And they're at much higher chance for things like cerebral edema. And oftentimes if people are way older and they have a lot more comorbidities, they can get they can get a lot of other problems from that perspective as well. Crystal exactly. Claire? Yep, and more dehydrated, and it's usually been developing for a longer period of time. Perfect, perfect, excellent, yeah. excellent. So, what are we gonna be doing here? ABCs, oh, my, my friend, still applies to your ABCs. People can be at risk. Remember, they can have cerebral edema, they can present with um, uh, um, um, decreased LOC, they can have all sorts of stuff going on. So your ABCs, your OMIP oxygen monitor, getting IV access, the only thing better than one IV, Brady, is? Two, two. Especially, exactly. especially in these conditions, because you're gonna need two regardless. Perfect, perfect, yeah. exactly. You're gonna be doing two because you're gonna probably be giving them some fluid and also giving them a bit of insulin, right? Exactly. So with DKA, remember you get more of a ketoacidosis, HHS, there's the, the acidosis, not, is, is, if you have HHS and you have acidosis, it's usually from something else. Your septic, your lactate is up, something else is going on. Does that yep. make sense? Yep. Perfect. So DKA, so oh, um, uh, um, um, and you're following DKA with your anion gap. What did I say? You're following DKA with your anion, anion gap. gap. Absolutely. Not with your glucose. Exactly. People make a mistake and think of you're following with your glucose, you're following with your anion gap, right? Because yeah. you're using the insulin to help you reverse the acidosis, and that's what kills people. Yeah. And the thing that I keep in my head that I, I like because it guides your management is a DKA and HHS at their heart, um, even though the acidosis will kill you, at their heart, what they are is a dehydration problem. It's exactly. A, it's, exactly. You're, they're profoundly dehydrated. If you fix that, you manage to fix all the other things as well. Perfect. Perfect. Exactly. Exactly. That's a very, very good point and stuff. So oftentimes, especially for those HHS patients, their fluid deficits can be massive, right? Um, um, so HHS, way differentiated from EDK, oftentimes the glucose is actually much higher. Like you can get HHS with people. I've seen people with glucose of 65, 70 millimoles and stuff. So oftentimes it's quite higher. The acidosis um, is not present in its classical form. Oftentimes these patients are acidosis, uh, do have acidosis because they have a precipitate, right? Um, they have a, had a heart attack. They've had a PE. There's some infection going on and they have a lactic acidosis or some other type of acidosis. Because right. Of they don't have a ketotic acidosis. There you go. They don't have a ketotic acidosis, right? They don't have um, serum beta hydroxybutyrate contributing to their acidosis, right? They could have other stuff, but not particularly that one. Um, um that one. Um, uh, um, that one there. So, I like how the CDA Canadian Diabetes Association has an amazing table, will include it in the guidelines and stuff like that. And it basically has your summary for how you're going to manage patients with DKA. So basically, you want to make sure that. You do your ABCs and OMIP. That's always, always super important. You're considering your three major things. Fluids, potassium, and what is the acidosis? So first thing, fluids, right? Ask yourself, what is the corrected serum sodium? Does that make sense? What did I say, Brady? What is the corrected serum? Sodium. Because that depends on how, what kind of maintenance fluid you're going to be, what kind of fluid you're going to be giving this patient. Does that make sense? Exactly. Um, uh, um, what kind of fluid um, um, you're going to be giving this um, this uh, this patient. Now, of course, if the patient has a severe deficit, if they're in shock, if they're hypotensive, you're going to bolus them with normal saline. 
Exactly. You're not, you're not delaying for that. You're not delaying for that first set of lights. Exactly. Exactly. You're going to bolus that person to correct that hyperperfusive deficit. And then you're going to go from, uh, you're going to go from there. Most people have a pretty good deficit, right? So you got to give them some fluid and usually you're giving normal saline for, um, um, for four to eight hours, right? You're running them at a generous rate, right? 250, 500 mils per, um, um, 250 to 500 mils per uh, hour. Exactly. Once they kind of get close to uvolemic, you want to ask yourself, what is their corrected serum sodium? Because that depends on the type of fluid that you're going to be giving, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So if your corrected serum sodium is normal or if it's high, you're giving half normal saline to replace your losses. Does that make sense? So so if your corrected serum sodium is low, then you're giving normal saline. Is that crystal clear? That is crucial because you don't want the serum osmolality changing all that much because that can increase your chance of cerebral edema. Exactly. Is that crystal clear? Yep, absolutely. Perfect. Once, because we don't want to get, we don't want your glucose. You're giving this person all this fluid with no glucose. The glucose is going to drop fast just by a dilutional effects, right? So even without the insulin, glucose, um, 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 your glucose is going to drop pretty fast just because you're diluting them with all this IV, normal saline or half normal saline and stuff. Um, when your plasma glucose, when it gets to under 13, under 14 and stuff, you want to actually add glucose back. Make sure you're adding it black to your IV fluid that you're giving. Why? Because you don't want the serum osmolality to change that rapidly. Exactly. Yep. Perfect. What's the other salt you care about? <laughs> What's the other salt I care? The other salt I care about? Potassium. Hell's yeah. Hell's yeah, because guess what, folks? I think, and, this, and I like this too, because they talk about the fluids first, and then they talk about the potassium. Why? Because it causes you to use your brain. It causes you to use one neuron next to the other neuron. Listen, yeah. folks, what does insulin do to your potassium? It causes your potassium to drop, right? When people are hyperkalemic, we give them insulin to help strip the potassium intracellularly so the extracellular potassium will drop. Exactly. That's great. But the problem is a lot of people that have that have DKA are actually depleted. And with HHS, they're depleted in their potassium stores. So if you're giving them whack loads of insulin and you don't check or you're not cognizant of that potassium, you could give them profound hypokalemia, right? And, and hypokalemia can make you join an exclusive club called the VTAC Club, the Cardiac Arrhythmia Club. Does that make sense? And that's a, that's not a club that you want your patient to be part of. That you can have absolutely. Um, uh, that's not a club that you want your patient to be part of, or so, right? So again, if your potassium is low, you have to give IV potassium and get it into the normal range before starting insulin. Exactly. Yeah. Perfect. And I always like, even with all this stuff, I like to simplify it down to just the the basic tidbits, uh, especially at a resident level and for the first years of practice, and even at my level. So DKA, you got the diagnosis. Before you panic, before you do anything else, remember that it's a huge fluid deficit, that it's usually uh, quite a profound total body potassium deficit, although you don't know what the potassium is. You can st- you get two IVs, you can start giving fluid right off the bat, and fluid is your initial management. Like That's what you need to give, and you need to give a good liter to start off with, and that gives you the five minutes to get the initial lights back and to look up the DKA algorithm. Five minutes? Where do you work to get <laughs> yeah. your electrolytes back in five minutes? Where's your stat- iStat machine? Your iStat machine. You're running what? them yourself. I don't have an iStat. Oh. Dr. Bouchard, you're in the... You- oh, my God. I had no idea. iStat? That is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. It. Absolutely. You're like... I want to know what that person's serum rhubarb is. Does that exactly. Make serum rhubarb. I want to stat Cianca. Yeah. I want that Cianca faster than that neutrophil can push it out. Does that make sense? Perfect. 
Well, and the, and the, on the flip side of that is don't panic and don't give them insulin right up. The, there off the you bat. go. There you go. You and the thing that people don't realize, too, even with just the fluid, glucose will drop. And number two, the glucose dropping does not it doesn't tell you the badness of this situation. It's the acidosis. It is the anion gap, right? Yeah. And you're seeing that extra unmeasured anion as anion. That's what's making you acidotic, right? So again. Bitty fluid. Okay. You know what? Like, back off. They don't need insulin right away. They need it soon. Does that make sense? Like, this is something you're going to be starting very, very shortly. But you want to make sure, okay, what is their potassium, right? You do not want to give um, um, insulin to someone who you do not know their potassium, folks. Because their potassium could be really low and you could make it worse. Excellent. I also talked about the acidosis. So, again, when you want to give bicarb, really only the pH is under 7. Right? So don't get scared. Like the pH really has to be 6.9, 6.8, 7.0, something, 7.1. You're not giving them bicarb because guess what? Even for the, even giving bicarb to acidosis is like a, ah, we, because you're not correcting the underlying thing. All you're doing is transient and making the situation maybe for the underlying process, right? Yeah. Even for lactic acidosis, there's a lot of debate about whether or not bicarb is going to help in that particular condition because it's really to reverse the cause of the acidosis, not just cover it up transiently. Right. Exactly. I mean, it's controversial. There's probably no harm in giving it, but there's definitely yeah. no good evidence that it makes any difference. Exactly. exactly. And sometimes you can actually cause harm because remember, you have somebody, um, maybe they have a little failure. Maybe they're blocking their salt load a little bit and stuff like that. And you're giving them a lot of sodium bicarbonate and stuff like that too. Yeah. That's a hell of a lot of salt. Remember, each adult amp of sodium bicarbonate is eight point four percent. That's not a. That's like eight point four percent saline, right? That's uber uber hypertonic saline, right? Twice the tonicity of hypertonic saline. Perfect. So again, if they have the acidosis, what you want to do, and notice they did give it, start the insulin at a rate. Do not give bolus for anybody. So don't bolus. Back when I was in residency, we used to give like 0.1 units per kilogram bolus, and then we'd start a rate. Now it's just start everybody, adult and kid folks on a rate because bolus insulin, especially in kids, can increase the chance of cerebral edema, right? So you start everybody on a rate. And get their approximate rate, take 0.1 units per kilogram as a starting point, right? And running that rate of regular insulin, 0.1 units per kilogram per hour, and rechecking your glucose frequently and your um, uh, your acid-base status frequently in your electrolytes. Exactly. Perfect. And another thing along with the running insulin, I think another uh, um, clinical pearl is, you know, when you're running that insulin, that sugar is going to come down, it's going to come down, and it may keep coming down. But you, you don't stop the insulin until... The acidosis corrects itself. Yeah, until way past that. So if your sugar's dropping, what do you do? You give them sugar. You don't stop the you insulin. You give them sugar. You give them D50 in their IV. That's a perfect point. Remember, we use... And that happens a lot. You'll see people when they come and say, oh man, their glucose is like six now. So they're nothing. No, but their anion gap is still 30. No, they still need the insulin, right? What you're going to do is give them glucose. Even after their acidosis corrects themselves, we still like to overlap with subcutaneous insulin for four to six hours, right? Because if you don't, you're going to get a rebound uh, uh, hyperglycemia and stuff, right? So very, very important point. We use the anion gap, the degree of acidosis in the anion gap to predict how whether or not the situation gets better. A lot of people, their glucose might fall before their acidosis corrects themselves. If their glucose comes down into the normal range, and that's why, remember I was saying at the beginning, if your glucose drops below 14, we add glucose to your IV. So we make sure that we're considering that as a factor. Absolutely. Perfect. Oh my God, we had so much fun there. That was insane. That was that that blew my mind. Oh my god! We're just talking about all these different uh, all these different to um, uh, um, 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 topics uh, topics here. What else are we gonna talk about here? Oh, what else we can do? Um, good question. 
Oh, we never got onto right. last time the self-monitoring of blood glucose and vascular protection, all that kind of stuff. Perfect. All, all that kind of adjunct. Lead us off, Dr. Bouchard. Beautiful. We're giving diabetes the attention it deserves, right? Exactly. So it seems the trend is is the minute you get a diagnosis of diabetes and you start someone on metformin, you get them to start checking their sugars just so they can understand their diabetes better. But there's no exactly. good evidence for that, though. Perfect. So, so Perfect. I'm fine with doing it because it's not going to really do any harm, right? But, exactly. But there's there's a good study from uh, 2005, Shepard, yeah. um, that said that checking it uh, up to three times a day wasn't associated with, you know, anything if they're not on insulin. Perfect, perfect. Excellent. That's a perfect point. If you're just taking oral medications, right, there, it's not like you're going to get, you know, by if people, sometimes I do it more because it might motivate the patient. Wow, you went for a run and look, your blood glucose came down by five millimoles. Does Beautiful. that make sense? That's a good so point. Yep. Maybe, they, maybe, that'll, maybe if you go for runs, that'll help it come down, right? So it's not to say that we don't use it. Whether or not it helps them get better glucose control, that's a whole different argument, right? Exactly. Um, um, but can it help motivate the, the, the patient? It can. It's been my experience. It can. Yep. But you don't need to do it um, 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 as part of being on 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 non um, uh, on um, on glucose lowering agents other than insulin right and, insulin that, and that's the perfect point mike and that's yeah. what i was hoping you were going to respond with is if you're going for a specific target or a specific reason or to motivate them then sure do it but you don't need to is one good point and also they don't need to do it regularly so do it for a week or two when you stick them on metformin and tell them that you know to check it after they've eaten check it after they're doing exercise and they can understand what their sugar Exactly, exactly. That is that is a perfect and stuff. So I often use it to help motivate the patient, right? Yeah, we know from that study and stuff, that's an oldie and a goodie and stuff that yeah, you know, probably as far as better control, um when you're using oral hyperglycemic agents and stuff, you're not really doing much by checking glucose fifteen times a day, you know what I mean? Um uh, but definitely to help motivate the patient, you know, if the patient wants to, then I'll 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 have that discussion and we'll go from uh we'll go from there. Yeah, and exactly. And conversely, once they're on insulin, there's also good evidence from that same study that said um, that you get improved glycemic control with it. So perfect. Exactly, exactly and stuff. So perfect, perfect yeah. stuff. And even even when they're on the long acting insulin, once they're stable on it, I mean, a lot of patients will be like, why am I checking? I'm, you know, between four and seven every morning. Um, exactly. Still probably not a bad idea to do it. They're only checking once a day. Perfect, perfect. No, no, no. That's, uh, that's very, very, um, that's, uh, that's very, very true and stuff. Yeah. Perfect. Um, what's another point in there? critical illness or if they're in hospital or if they're sick you have to remind them that they have to check more often if anything changes with their diet if they do intensive exercise if they Excellent. you know anything kind of changes that they probably want to check it a little bit more often and keep in mind glucose control like we know intensive glucose control in places like the icu there's no real benefit you know what i mean and stuff but we don't want your glucose is all over the place if you're a hospitalized patient right because we know that those people do worse you know what i mean and stuff in hospital so they've actually done lots of studies looking at glucose control in the icu or with really sick patients whether or not you keep them you know eight to ten versus eight to you know but for six to eight and your tight control. And we know that probably the tight, tight control is not necessary, but we don't want you to be all over the place, right? Because we know that if your glucose is going up to 35 on a routine day, you're going to have worse outcomes than if we get you better glucose control. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Perfect. And then mentioning to them there, so if they're fasting sugars, aka, you know, anywhere is two hours after a meal, four to seven, just like they're fasted in the morning. And uh, sorry, their fasted sugars in the morning should be four to seven. And then their two hours after meals should be uh, between five and 10. If they're going above that, then they probably need to have an adjustment. Perfect. Perfect. Excellent. Excellent. Let's talk about kids. I don't, I don't have kids, so I don't know anything about kids. They're, listen, we have to talk about kids. <laughs> kids are awesome. They're, 
they're just like little adults, right? Oh, totally. In every single oh, way. Totally, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we're going to piss off every pediatrician in the country if we say that, right? Of course they're not. They have unique needs, right? So definitely, a lot of times, too, younger children are going to be diagnosed. They're more likely to be type 1. Does that Absolutely. make sense? Yeah. Um, keep in mind, you, your patient population, we have um, uh, um, um, kids who are diagnosed at 12, 13 years old that end up with type 2 diabetes, right? So Absolutely. again, you know, it depends on your um, it depends on your population and stuff, you know? So again, you, you know, um, uh, um, a lot of the tenants are similar, you know, multidisciplinary team, diabetes nurse educator, um, dietitian, you know, what I mean, you're going to want to make sure that you follow for growth, those types of things. Glycemic um, uh, um, targets are a bit different, you know what I mean, and stuff under six years old and stuff, your, your target A1C changes a little bit. So you tend to be a little bit more liberal, the younger the kids are right. So under six, um, they want it under eight. Um, uh, um, um, fasting plasma between uh, fasting preprandial uh, um, between six and ten. Does that make sense? As the kid gets older, then you know between twelve it goes down to under an A one C of under seven and a half, and you know kind of teenage years thirteen to eighteen it goes to under seven. Kind of similar to what it would be in most um uh, in most uh, adults and stuff. So definitely, definitely, definitely um um you want to um you want to consider um you want to consider that too. Adolescents. Remember, you do not want them. You want to encourage them about smoking cessation if they do smoke or tell them not to smoke because with diabetes, you can have, you know, because you're going to have your diabetes for much, much longer. and You don't want to run into problems in your 20s and 30s. So definitely, definitely important. Important points with uh, uh, um, advocating for, not ad, for, um, for DKA management. We talk about, you know, a, a lot of similar principles, but again, do not bolus the insulin in kids. That's a real take-home point. And to make it simple, we don't bolus the insulin in anybody, right? You should be running them at a, at a rate because kids are way more susceptible than adults to um to um to uh cerebral uh to uh to uh to cerebral um uh, edema yeah. or so you know yeah absolutely Excellent. and i think the one and another good point actually i learned something from you there mike a, a couple of your points on the different targets in kids i didn't know but another yeah. point i have in mind with the kids um that is both good and bad is uh, often the obesity that leads to the type 2 diabetes is because of parental habits and certainly eating habits yeah. but on the flip yeah. side of that um, kids don't have control over their own diet. So if you can get parents on board, you can slim down some of these kids if they're, if they're willing and able and they can get to yeah. a normal weight and get rid of their diabetes or they're at risk for their diabetes, um, you know, versus adults who, you know, generally lack self-control and, and, and yeah. good, good luck losing the weight. So. There you go. There you go. Perfect. Perfect. Too. Remember, diabetes in kids and stuff can be associated with other types of autoimmune conditions. Remember, autoimmune thyroiditis, um, um, celiac disease and stuff. So um, um, kids with type 1 diabetes and stuff, especially for the autoimmune um, thyroid disease and stuff, they pretty well, you know, a lot of pediatric endocrinologists will like to, 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 to do a TSH at the time of diagnosis, do thyroid antibodies. Um, um, for celiac, if they have symptoms, they'll check. Um, for Addison's, if they have symptoms, they'll, uh, they'll, uh, they'll check as well, too. But just keep it in mind these these can um, type one diabetes in young kids be associated with other um, autoimmune um, um, autoimmune uh, conditions and you know just to run through this you don't need to know this in depth at all because that's why we have our wonderful pediatric endocrinology colleagues and stuff but remember there's different um, screening intervals for nephropathy and retinopathy in children and stuff so we yeah. will do um, 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 so just keep that in mind uh, uh, too and stuff so for nephropathy retinopathy neuropathy dyslipidemia hypertension as well right and those are all well documented in the guidelines stuff I wouldn't say you have to really stress about that for the exam because that's really the realm of pediatric endocrinology but just understand that you really want to um, you really want to um, uh, um, uh, um, see about uh, making sure that you adhere to those things sounds good that's great Mike perfect 
Excellent. So a little bit on in the kids. What about another one? Pregnancy. We got to talk about pregnancy, Doctor Bouchard. Oh my goodness, pregnancy. Look, at, I'm, I'm just like integral pregnancy. Great. Think about the integral. It's all the integral. My friend. That doesn't even Pregnant. make an sense. Engineer. You're an engineer, my friend. That... You, let me question. How do you know an engineer? Do you have your iron ring right on right now? I absolutely do. Oh my God! Look, and then you say it's like in the blood, man. in the blood. Yeah, I I do. I have my oh, ring. N G three words for you. Engineer. <laughs> I think that's just one word, but nice try. Listen, don't worry about making it three today, my friend. Perfect. Ah, <laughs> uh, goodness, pregnancy. So, gestational diabetes, right? Absolutely. So, exactly. I'm gonna ask you a trick. I'm gonna see if like you you can fall for this trap. Okay. okay. Do all women? Every single woman needs, um, who's pregnant needs screening for gestational diabetes. And the answer is? Oh, that's very good. So in our guidelines, yes, but no, they don't. Exactly, exactly. So keep in mind, higher risk women, yes. And, a and what they define as higher risk is a vast majority of women. Does that make sense? But routine, random screening for everybody, including with negative family history, no family history of diabetes, person isn't obese, person never had Skinny, nothing, exactly. nothing, nothing, exactly. Probably not from a population level. Does that make sense? Um, uh, um, uh, um, um, uh, should uh, should go from there. So you, you want to keep that. Uh, you want to keep that in mind and stuff, right? So exactly. okay. And there's Perfect. differences. And while you're on the topic, there's differences between the 75 gram oral glucose tolerance test and the 50 gram oral glucose challenge test. They have different sensitivities and specificities. Um, and the training I had before, which I like, is um, the 50 gram you can do if they're low risk. Uh, probably they should have the 75 gram if they're higher risk. Exactly, exactly. So the 50 gram is also like almost like a screen, right? That you exactly. use in your 25 to 28 weeks or so um, 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 is your screening test. And oftentimes to make that diagnosis, that's when they'll do the 75 gram. You know what I mean? And stuff. And folks, I'm really sorry. You need to know the numbers for this. And let me just pull up my little chart here and stuff because I don't walk around with these numbers and stuff. I don't waste I'm like my brain space. You know what I mean? And stuff. Remember, exactly. I try and remember as little as I can. I look up everything. Exactly. And stuff. So again, you know, great one value is abnormal. If fasting is greater than 5.3, one hour is greater than 10.6, and two hours greater than 8.9 or 9. Does that make sense? Beautiful. So, exactly. And stuff. So, you need greater than or equal to one value. That's abnormal. And the diagnosed, um, uh, um, 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 so that's what you want to consider for your diagnosis. So, you could do your screen first, and then you're going to do your two hour glucose tolerance test. Yeah. And when are you screening? You tell me when we're screening, Dr. Bouchard. 24 to 28 weeks. Perfect. 24 to 28 yeah. weeks. Excellent. Yeah. We don't screen Good earlier stuff. than that because there, you don't get the fetal effects, right? So There you go. There you go. You don't get the fetal effects later. Late. And keep in mind, like, if you, you know, if they throw you a question again, hi, you have a patient with known type 2 diabetes, you know, they, you know, and they get pregnant. Like, that's different. Does that make sense? Like, you wouldn't screen them. They need management of their blood sugar in pregnancy, right? Absolutely. And there are specific glycemic targets that we might select. Does that make sense? For women who are pregnant with known diabetes and stuff. Yeah, and if you have known diabetes, you don't get a gestational diabetes diagnosis on top of that. There you, you go. Know. Very good. Very good and stuff. You have diabetes, and we need to adjust things um, based on that or so, right? Right. So, again, what they'll often do and stuff is they'll do a 50-gram glucose tolerance test, right? If it's under 7.8, great. Does that make sense? That's normal. If it's greater than 11.1, you probably have diabetes, right? Yeah. And sometimes what they do is if it's kind of in between between 7.8 and 11, then they'll go along and do the 75-gram two-hour um, 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 oral glucose tolerance te test, right? And that's when you have the 5.3, the 10.6, and the 9. If one of those values 
are if it's greater than one of those values, then you boom, you have a diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Exactly. Beautiful. Excellent. And just keep in mind there's specific um, 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 cutoffs that they use. Your targets are going to be different for during uh, um, uh, um, um, pregnancy and stuff. So the targets and stuff, fasting is usually under 5.3. One hour is less than 7.8. So if they're checking their sugars one after a meal, you want it under 7.8. Two hour, usually less than 6.7, right? What is your first line management for gestational diabetes is lifestyle modification. Does that make sense? Is lifestyle modification. Get people to see uh, a, a diabetic uh, specialist. They're going to learn to take their blood sugars. Um, uh, if their blood sugars are persistently high over the next couple of weeks, then they're going to be started once on your medication of choice. Insulin. Insulin, my friend. And we talked about for screening um, purposes, 24 to 28 weeks. And if you're in pregnant and you're managing that patient with insulin, your target is usually under 5.3 if you're fasting and you're one hour under about 7.8, two hour under about 6.7. Folks, the numbers will be in the show notes. You're going to forget them after you listen to this. That's fine. I will as well. Read your guidelines and stuff like that when you're actually, when you're actually managing your patients so you get all these numbers right. Exactly. Crystal clear? Yeah. Second line, Perfect. Matt Foreman has a role, but I would leave that to the obstetricians, I think. Exactly, exactly. So metformin does have a role. Glyburide can have a role. But keep in mind, those are second line agents. Does that make sense? So what does that mean? The person flat out refuses to be on insulin and they still have a high glucose and they're not tolerating, um, uh, um, 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 they're not getting their glucose under control with, um, they're not getting their glucose under control with, uh, with um, uh, um, 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 lifestyle modification by itself. Yeah, fair enough. Perfect. Are we rocking? And remember, folks, people are pregnant. Remember, if people are on ACEs, if they're on statin, get them off that stuff, right? They can't be on that stuff in pregnancy. So just keep that in mind. What are some complications? Big deal. Okay, so you have diabetes in pregnancy. Why do we care about that? Because it can affect the infant and it can affect mom. So what's the big risk factor in mom is that infants become babies. So there's a, a bigger chance that, you know, they're going to get stuck. Their shoulder's going to get stuck during delivery because you're delivering a bigger um, infant, higher chance of tears. And a big one is they could get a diabetes overtly later on in life. Mom. Exactly. And that's a that's what a big some... point for us in where we are because we don't do obstetrics routinely. We do emergence obstetrics. Um, is the diabetic patients um, that are delivering macrosomic babies and having a, God forbid, a shoulder dystocia. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Perfect, perfect, yeah. So excellent, excellent. So, and just keep in mind uh, too, how does it affect babies? The yeah. integrator is gonna answer this one. How does it affect babies? Well, they have so much insulin on board and then they're born. What do you think? What can happen to the blood glucose integrator? Exactly. Yeah, it drops precipitously. Oh my God, neonatal hypoglycemia, and they can get lots of other complications too. Sacralagenesis, they can get um um they can get uh, ner um um conduction issues with their heart. Lots of stuff can go on with kids. So again, there's maternal and fetal um um side effects as well too. So and that likes to come up on, on exam as well. Yeah, absolutely. Are we rocking? Rocking. Are we rocking? I think we got through everything we want to talk today about like diabetes. Like we we did it justice. Vascular protection, man. Oh my God. <sighs> <laughs> We you missed one. Greater strikes again. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's not, it's not the sexiest exactly. topic with diabetes, but it's in there. It's in there. Yeah. Bring us off, Dr. Bouchard. What do you talk about vascular protection here? And I know oh, the CDA has an excellent one pager on this. Fantastic one pager on vascular protection. Exactly. Every resident and and most uh, most uh, at least new in practice docs have seen that one pager, which is just awesome. But that uh, is awesome. Yeah, just to run through it really quickly, so. And it's set up beautifully. So step one, does the patient have end organ damage? 
So either macrovascular or microvascular, you have you differentiate between the two. So macrovascular, I mean, it, it, it speaks for itself, but they've had MIs, they have cardiac ischemia, they have peripheral arterial disease, they've had a stroke, they have carotid disease. Then they need to be on a statin, they need to be on an ACE or an ARB, and they need to be on ASA. Um, perfect, perfect. And it really kind of goes to the management of diabetes is more of a holistic approach. It's global risk factor reduction. It's not just A1C and we're underneath the limbo bar and we try to keep it under there. No, it's global risk factor reduction. Your people with macrovascular disease, so macrovascular atherosclerotic manifestations, they're really high risk. Exactly. They have to be on an A's. They need to be on ASA because they had a macrovascular manifestation. So what's next to like underneath that, Dr. Bouchard? People with not macro stuff, but they have? Uh, micro stuff, exactly. Oh, my. The integrator strikes again. Beautiful. So microvascular disease, the one thing that changes with that, ASA not quite as indicated in there or not Perfect. really indicated. Um, and the thing to mention about the statins and the ACE and the ASA, the reason these all came out was from specific studies for each of them. And there's there's a target for each of the statins in diabetes, a target dose, yeah. and there's a target for each of the ACEs in, in diabetes as well. So you want to try and hit those targets. And the other thing is that with a, with a lipid target with a statin, um, there's the target dose for diabetes, but also if they're not getting their LDL below two, so you're treating them as if they have hyperlipidemia, even if they don't. Um, then you want to increase that and get that LDL lower. Perfect, perfect. No, 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 that's, that's very, very true. Very, very true. Yep, beautiful. Then, so they're on a statin or an ACE if they have microvascular disease. Um, if they don't have that, then you're on to step two. So what's their age? If they're yep. older than 55, they're on a uh, statin and ACE, so they fit into the same category as microvascular. Um, if, yeah. they're, if they're younger than that, they're just on a statin. Um, mm -hmm. and then below that, um, they're on a statin also, if they've had a diabetes diagnosis for greater than 15 years and they're over the age of uh, 30, um, or obviously they're on a statin if they, uh, need to be on a statin because of the, uh, lipidemia targets, the Canadian cardiovascular society targets. Excellent. Well, which I'm sure we'll be talking about very soon. Oh yeah, absolutely. Of course. Of course. Excellent. So perfect. So the smart sort of approach, right? So global risk factor discussion, um, um, reduction, it's really stratified on, do you have macrovascular disease? Do you have microvascular disease? What is your age? And it's kind of, it, it, it's stratified according to that, right? So we're going to do more into more um, under certain pharmacologic interventions. And remember, all these people are on, are maximizing their non-pharmacologic stuff, diet, exercise, weight loss, all that wonderful stuff, right? Yeah. So you're not, not doing that stuff in all, um, uh, um, all of, um, all of these individuals and stuff, but people with macrovascular or proven atherosclerotic macrovascular complications, they're at a much, much higher risk than let's say the person who isn't. Exactly. Perfect. Beautiful. Love it. Nice work, Mike. The effervescent Brady Bouchard, as always. So, what's our next topic going to be? We have to Ooh, decide that. Good I think, question. Let's blast through dyslipidemia. It kind good. of begins with D as well, too. Yeah. No, I, 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 dyslipidemia will be good because it's not nearly as big of a topic to talk about as diabetes, but it's so, so common. So. Perfect, perfect. It's one of our family medicine sort of pearls. Yeah. Excellent talking to you today. Beautiful. Have a wonderful day. The integrator is perfect. You as well. Have a wonderful weekend, Mike. Alrighty, you take care. Later. Bye.